This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fambregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight, we return to our core topic, UFOs. No, I have not forgotten or given priority to other topics. Remember, everything is interconnected. And to talk about how everything is interconnected indeed, tonight's special guest is Len Kasten. We'll discuss his new book, The Secret History of Extraterrestrials, Advanced Technology and the Coming New Rays. Len Kasten will be with us shortly. And while you listen to tonight's show, I'm currently at the International UFO Congress in Arizona. If you're here, don't forget to say hello. And if you just subscribed and are discovering what Veritas is all about, welcome. I will record as much audio and video as I can here, and will report back when I return. And speaking of guests, take a look at our upcoming shows. If you want a lineup of guests who are sure to open your mind 
in ways you never thought possible? Every show coming is just that. Oh, and to all of you Cliff High fans who kept contacting me for another show, well, Cliff is returning to Veritas, write this down, on April 15th, 2011. If you're a Veritas member and want to submit a question, make sure you go to the Manticore Forum. As you know, there are too many things happening right now. That's why I called this upcoming show Red Skies. It will air four days before the sun wakes up again. It seems that as the year progresses, the emotional language, I'm not talking about the webbot here, keeps rising everywhere, and events keep manifesting rather quickly. All I can say is buckle up. This year is turning out to be a bigger roller coaster than last year. To listen to tonight's interview and all our interviews, including Veritas TV, where I'll be placing many of the interviews conducted at the International UFO Congress, become a member. You'll receive instant access to all of our material. And remember, Veritas survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. No censorship. So if you've been listening to the first segment of the show for some time, don't you think it's time to listen to the entire show and support our work? I hope you do. Just visit our website, veritasshow.com, click on the subscribe link, and take Veritas with you. You can now download the latest show via the iTunes link. That simple. And if you're new to the show and are overwhelmed by the number of episodes, then purchase the 8GB metal-cased USB drive with Season 1 or 2. They both come with bonus material that you won't get anywhere else. Go to the Veritas store for more information. And don't forget, you can buy MMS right from us. If you don't know what MMS is, go to our past shows link and listen to my interview with Jim Humble. This is something that should not be absent in your home. It's one of those things that's better to have and not need than need and not have. And if you need to get in touch with me, go to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the contact button and join me on Facebook. And now, get ready for an up-to-date survey of the vast array of issues that are now emerging into the public consciousness regarding an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. This interview will open your mind and introduce you to realities and experiences you may have mistakenly assumed can exist only as fiction. If the answers to the questions about what this means for the human race don't go anywhere, Len Caston is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Most of the great music you hear right here on the Veritas show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases right there at Jamendo.com.
is Dr. Brian O'Leary, and you're listening to the Veritas Radio Show. Len Keston has a bachelor's degree from Cornell University, where he majored in psychology and minored in literature and philosophy. After graduating from Cornell, he entered the United States Air Force Aviation Cadet Program. While in the Air Force, he experienced a UFO encounter that had a transformative effect on his life, although he didn't realize it until a few years later. After serving in the Air Force, he moved to Richmond, Virginia. On frequent trips to Virginia Beach, he spent a lot of time in the extensive New Age Library at the Association for Research and Enlightenment, ARE. The organization's founder, Psychic Edgar Cayce, where he acquired a self-education in metaphysics. He then moved to Boston, where he was introduced to theosophy and joined the Boston Theosophical Society. Then later, while working in Washington, D.C. in the 1960s, he felt drawn to join the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. NICAP. NICAP was the most prestigious organization in the country investigating UFO phenomena. Land then moved to Hartford, Connecticut, where he joined the American Philosopher Society. Upon the death of the founder, Cyril Benton, Land became the president of the society. In the 1980s, the APS, under Land's leadership, commenced a program of weekly public lectures by prominent metaphysical and ufology researchers, writers, and leaders. While living in Connecticut, Land became the editor of an early New Age publication. Metamorphosis magazine, co-founded with Gordon Michael Scallion, and directly from Southern Arizona, where our temperature broke a record yesterday, 18 degrees Fahrenheit. I would like to introduce for the first time on Veritas, Len Caston. Hello, Len, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hi, Mel. Thanks. I'm good. Well, Len, in addition to the background that we just heard what really started your interest in UFOs and extraterrestrials? I believe you had an experience. And before we start talking about your great book, which I just finished last night, The Secret History of Extraterrestrials, Advanced Technology, and the Coming New Race, what was that moment that started you into being a researcher? Well, I really think that experience I had in the Air Force um, had, a, had a profound effect on me, although I didn't realize it so, because, you know, frequently abductions like that are buried in the subconscious but that's what drew me to join NICAP about three years later. I'm convinced now because at that point, uh, UFO research was not very popular, yet I was drawn to do that. And uh, that exposed me to a wide, a wide swath of uh, UFO information. Can you describe that encounter that you had? Well, I was in the Air Force uh, in a barracks room. Uh, there were two of us in the room. And... Uh, I never wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning for any reason. I didn't at that time. And something something uh, prompted me to do that. I jumped out of bed and ran to the window, and no sooner did I do that than I saw the uh, the craft flashing by. It was a green and gold phosphorescent color, moving very, very fast and very silent. And I watched it go out over the Gulf of Mexico with my face pressed to the window. Something made me watch it. I can't explain what it was, but... Now I see that if I had been abducted and, and had been returned to my room, then I would have, of course, run to the window like that. It would have been uh, the natural thing to do. Uh, the next morning, the tower operators came in and said they had four UFOs on the radar that night on the, at, at the end of the runway. And I said, well, I saw one, something coming from that uh, part of the runway. They said, well, go report it to the UFO office, which at that point I had no idea what a UFO e even was. But I did. I found the office, and uh, there was a captain there. He had a multi-page questionnaire. He was not at all surprised at my estimated speed of the craft to be about uh, 
I guess we calculated it to be about 16,000 miles an hour based on when I first saw it and when I saw it disappear. And uh, none of that surprised him. And now I realize that he was probably the Blue Book representative uh, at Eglin Air Force Base at that time. And so uh, I think I was taken on board the craft because a day later I got very, very sick. And I've learned later that uh, getting this kind of flu-like sickness is is symptomatic of having been on board a craft. It happens to a lot of people. So just putting it all together, uh, apparently uh, I was abducted at that point and learned something, although I have no idea what, that uh, prompted me to later join NICAP and uh, has has caused me to have a lifelong interest in UFOs and ETs. And uh, well, part of your book deals with the hypnotic regression and, and, and the hybrids and all that good stuff. And you mentioned some names uh, like Bud Hopkins and, and uh, Dr. John Mack. Did you ever seek uh, their assistance with uh, uh, hypnotic regression to, to see if you could recollect more of what happened? I never did, but I'm sure that if I, did, if I were to do that, something interesting would come out. Because right. it's the only explanation for how I got so involved in uh, metaf- not only in UFOs but in metaphysics. Because I think it was because of that experience that prompted me to spend so much time at the Casey Library in Virginia Beach, as right. well. And for those who who know, of course, most people in our audience would know who the sleeping prophet is, uh, Edgar Casey. But starting with your book, we have so much more to cover, and I don't want to waste any time. In your book's introduction, Len, you made a comment that caught my eye. You said, "Quote." While Voyager 2 is expected to reach the Sirius starts, uh, start system in only 296,000 years, it might be more expeditious to deliver that hopeful message in person to the Syrians already here on Earth, working side by side with humans. Right. Please expand, and, and you have any proof to confirm this? I would direct you to the books on the Montauk experiment at Montauk Point, Long Island. I think you probably have uh, some knowledge of that, don't you? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I had Stuart Swertlow last week and Preston Nichols in the near future. Oh, you had Swertlow on your program? Yes, last week. Oh, that must have been exciting. I'm sorry I missed that. <laughs> yes. He, know, he knows a lot. <laughs> Swertlow knows a lot. Anyway, I think uh, Swertlow or, may have told you, but certainly Preston Nichols will, that the aliens who are working at Montauk are, are Syrians. And they're working on time travel uh, there in that underground base, or they have been uh, in the past. So we we know that we know that the Syrians are working there at least uh, with humans, and my my uh, information is that some of those humans are ex-Nazis. So um, that links it up with the time travel experiments that the Nazis were doing way back before World War II. So there is and this is there. a. And this is a big portion of your book that I'd like to discuss uh, later as well, the Nazi connection. It seems people, they seem to forget that the Nazis uh, lost the war but won the peace. And there's evidence out there to to show what may have happened with them, going all the way to Antarctica after or before the war ended, suspecting that they were going to lose the war, transferring the technology down to an underground base in the Schwabenland, and maybe to the moon, maybe to Mars, but we'll discuss that later. The beginning of the book starts with a name known by probably most of our audience, George Adamski. Give us a summary of George Adamski's experience and why is he so important to any researcher? Well, Adamski was unusual in that he was... um apparently made telepathic contact 
with uh, with the extraterrestrials prior to his encounter. So uh, he was because he was a, a, a teacher of philosophy, and he was in his fifties when this happened. Uh, he knew about telepathy, and he had been teaching uh, about telepathy to his students. So he was. Uh, it, it came easy to him when he had that encounter with uh, Orthon in the desert uh, on November the twentieth, nineteen fifty-two, which, which is exactly what uh, the the encounter that I cover in my book. So that first chapter tells the whole story of that encounter that he had uh, with Orthon, uh, who claimed to be from Venus. Uh, November that he called it uh, in his in his book. The chapter is titled the memorable November 20th. And he gives the whole story there, and my chapter is taken from that story. And in that same chapter, and by the way, I'm so impressed because a lot of the people you mentioned here, we've had the privilege to, to interview. One of them, it's our mutual friend, uh, Bob Dean, Command oh, Sergeant yeah. Major Robert O'Dean. Why is he also so important to the UFO community? Well, as you, as you know now, having read the book, you know that I devoted the whole set, second chapter to, to the Bob Dean story. Yes. And uh, because Bob, uh, you know, when he had the experience in France uh, while working for NATO, uh, he didn't really understand all the implications. He read a top-secret book that was the result of a three-year study by NATO uh, that, that proved indisputably that we are being visited by uh, extraterrestrials. They came to that conclusion after a thorough study um, of, of the UFO incidents in Europe at that time. Uh, that changed his whole life because he had no inkling of any of that having gone on before. He had no knowledge of anything relating to UFOs. So uh, he, but he was he was sworn to secrecy, and he took he had taken the the oath, the security oath. So he he couldn't tell anybody about it until he retired, which was about, I think, 17 years later. And uh, then he, he started another career in Arizona, and so he, he didn't say anything about it for another 12 years, I believe it was. But finally, when he did, uh, he had, by that time, accumulated a great deal of more, in, more information over that 30-year period about what was going on. And he had uh, connections with some of the most knowledgeable people about UFOs, including including uh, uh, Colonel uh, Wendell Stevens, who lived mm -hmm. near him in, in Tucson. Right. So by the time he actually started speaking about it, he had already accumulated a tremendous amount of information, a lot of files, and he learned a lot due to his connections. So he had a lot to contribute, and he has a lot to talk about. And speaking of uh, the late Colonel Wendell Stevens uh, being in Tucson, the day before he passed away, Len, I got a phone call from somebody who said there's an estate sale taking place here and they have hundreds and hundreds of books and publications and, and manuals and, and papers about UFOs. You want to come and get them? So I went and I purchased the entire lot and uh, a lot of it included all of Wendell Stevens' work, a lot of it uh, in plastic, wrapped as collector's items, and unfortunately, the next day he passed away. Isn't that a coincidence? Boy, that is amazing. So you have all that material now? I do. I do. It's, uh, it's wow. taking probably half of my office and my studio here. Uh, so many books, you won't even believe it. It's all stuff from the 50s. I have hundreds of news newspapers coming from all the way from the 50s till now. You don't see a lot of that material. Uh, in our newspapers anymore. Wow, 
you were able to buy all that. So his widow did had no control over any of that. Oh, you had already bought it before he died. No, actually, it was not theirs. It was somebody else who was a UFO enthusiast who was in the hospital and passed away. Well, you know that Paul Rao, who who also uh, now purchased the International UFO Open Conference. Minds, yes. Yeah, he, he bought a lot of that material too, did he not? He, well, he bought all of the Wendell Stevens material. I bought it from somebody else. He was just a fan of Wendell Stevens and everybody else, so they were unrelated. But yes, John Rao, the CEO for Open Minds TV, purchased all the material uh, from Wendell before he passed away. That's correct. Right. Yeah, I understand he has it now. Well, I hope something gets done with that material because it's invaluable. I mean, he had the largest collection of, of UFO material of anybody on the planet, I think. And that's yes. photos. Absolutely. Photos, yeah. Absolutely. Wow, that's unbelievable. Now, Len, you had the privilege also of interviewing someone who's no longer with us. Uh, that someone put the abduction phenomenon on, I would say, in the proverbial map. A great loss for all of us. I'm referring to the late Dr. John Mack. Yes. Why is also, why is his name so important and still so impeccable? Well, you see, uh, before Mack came along, it was all, uh, Bud Hopkins was the major figure in talking about the uh, the abductions. He he was doing all of the hypnotic regressions and all bringing out all this information. But because he was an artist, uh, his credentials were suspect. And people said, well, you know, what's his background? What right does he have to be talking about these abductions? All right. Uh, even though he was a very careful researcher, and uh, he did did a lot of tremendous work with uh, with, hypno with hypnosis, but when John Mack came along, uh, he was a psychiatrist, and so his his work could not be suspect. I mean, nobody could challenge they, nobody could challenge the conclusions of of somebody who had been educated at Harvard and was a psychiatrist. Right. So he gave he gave believability and credibility to the whole to the whole phenomenon that, that Bud Hopkins was not able to do. But, you know, he gave him his due when he said in, in the introduction to his book, he said uh, to Bud Hopkins, who led the way. So he did give, he did give Hopkins credit for having been the, the pioneer in, this, uh, in, the, in the whole thing. And, and absolutely. And speaking about Dr. Mack and, and some of the testimonies he collected via hypnotic regression, a common theme that these alleged abductees shared was that they said, the abductors actually would say, you are killing your planet. Your planet is dying. And of course, we all know the story of uh, Jim Sparks, uh, which you also feature on your book. Folks, if you don't know who Jim Sparks is, I highly suggest you listen to the interview we did a couple of years ago. His story is absolutely astounding. What do you think uh, of his story, uh, Len? Yeah, I, I do. I think it's an amazing story, and it has the ring of truth to me. And I think it had the ring of truth to Linda Moulton Howe, too, because... She featured it prominently in her book, uh, High Strangeness. Uh, I think he's the real thing. And his story is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And one thing that caught my, my ear when I talked to, to Jim and read his, his book, The Keepers, was that at some of the locations during some of his abductions, he saw humans dressed in military uniform. And I asked him this question, Len. I asked him, do you think, if you saw military personnel, does that mean that there is collusion between the extraterrestrials and our military? And he said, absolutely. What's your take on this? I agree with it. And so does, uh, so does Linda Moulton Howe. And so does Dr. Richard Boylan and many others. Uh, Boylan talks extensively about the MyLabs uh, abductions. And it's gotten to the point where it's hard to distinguish, I think, 
from what I've read, between a MyLabs abduction and an alien abduction. Because I think the military have gotten so good at it, and so we don't really know who's doing what anymore. Because we do know that, that the military and the aliens are working side by side in these underground locations, such as uh, Dulce and uh, Area 51. So uh, presumably they have a lot of the technology and the ability to to make it appear as though it's an alien abduction. And it, if you if you want, yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think Boylan is the expert on that, Doctor Richard Boylan. Yes, and it there seems to be two sides. There's one side that says that all the aliens are benign. And there's another side that says that they're not. Uh, yeah, I don't like to offer my opinion when I'm when I'm interviewing, but I, I'm kind of in the middle on this one. And how about the comment from Jim Sparks and even from uh, the South African shaman, Credo Mutua, where he says, the aliens don't love us, they need us, and that aliens' motives are less than altruistic and benign. What's your take on, on this and, and the hybrid program that Dr. Joe Mack and Dr. David Jacobs talk about? I think the... Uh the Space Brothers contacts from the 50s were the, were the good guys. Mm. I think the the, uh, the Nordic or Pleiadian aliens who first contacted uh, George Adamski and George Van Tassel and Howard Menger and uh, Stephen... Billy Meyer. Uh, yes. They were trying to help us. They were trying to, to bring spirituality to the planet and to expand our consciousness. I think clearly that was the case. Because if you read any of Adamski's books, you'll see that, that it's very prominent. And then I think everything changed after 1954. Now, you may be familiar with that supposed meeting that Eisenhower had uh, in, um, I should say 1955, uh, in, Jan in 1955 with the uh, Greys at Holloman Air Force Base. Yes. You, has anyone talked to you about that at all? Oh, absolutely. I think that's when everything changed. And supposedly some sort of agreement was made then that allowed them to abduct. And that started a whole new cycle uh, of abductions. And then we were allowed them to do that in exchange for, for technology. I think the first, such, the first such abduction that we know about was Barney and Betty Hill uh, in New Hampshire in 1961. And after that, it just expanded exponentially. Let's talk about for a moment, and folks, if you see that I'm trying to, to cram as much as possible, it is because the book is so full and so rich with information, and you know me. When I have a guest, I like to extract as much as we can. Let's talk about the legacy of Jesse Marcel. Uh, you humorously call this next section the Russell Bunny, because like the JFK assassination story and the Energizer Bunny, this story keeps going and going. That's true. But let Roswell, it's so important because it's what really put the flying saucer phenomenon on the map. But why are there other why are other related cases somewhat ignored? Some of them happening decades before, like the Aurora crash in, in Texas in April 1897, or even the Jose Padilla and Remy Baca story in New Mexico uh, uh, in 1945, it seems that someone wants us to continue focusing on Roswell only. What's your take on this? Yeah, not only that, but supposedly the crash in 1941 in San Diego that some people talk about. You know, right. I devoted another chapter on that subject uh, in the book. The, the fact that it was like Sputnik was in 1957, 
Roswell was a defining inc- incident that that catapulted us into the uh, into the galactic age. Uh, I think certain events do have that, it's because they occur at a certain time and a certain place, and they have a certain quality about them. That Roswell just took on that aura of fame uh, and began the whole thing. As I pointed out in in that chapter, I said prior to that, prior to Roswell. The stars were just the subjects of romantic songs, you know? Nobody yeah. even thought about anybody coming from the stars. But after Roswell, everything changed. You know, everything changed after that event. And I think maybe it was because it did become an, uh, a newspaper uh, story, and it was, put, it was put on the radio, and uh, that may have had something to do with it. But I, I just think it was a, it's a case of what I call synchronicity. Well, you also talk about the Masonic Connection. Uh, and latitude 33.3 and Roswell. We all know how the Masons love uh, number 33. Please expand. Well, you know, that that uh, that chapter on uh, by David Flynn, uh, based on an interview with David Flynn in Roswell itself, that's where I interviewed him, was in Roswell. Uh, I think he, he, had it, he had it down. He, he knew exactly what the significance was in terms of the latitude, the longitude of the crash, uh, the date of the crash, which was, by the way, very, uh, very uh, incredible that it would occur on on the anniversary of Independence Day. Independence so Day, forty seven. Yeah. yeah, all that put together just invested that crash with an incredible significance that no other event has ever had, and it was the event that pushed us. It was the seminal event that pushed us into the uh, into the galactic age. And it's hard to explain why it was that particular event, especially since we know that the Nazis were already dealing with the extraterrestrials as early as 1933. Right, exactly. And we'll talk about an area that a lot of people talk about, and I've discussed this with, uh, I believe uh, you, of of course, know Jim Nichols. We discuss this all the time in the the Tibet-Nazi connection and the Ananurba. But then we move to one of the most interesting cases of all, as I discussed with Bill Ryan. It's either one of the most elaborate Hollywood scripts or one of the most important stories, Project Serpo. But first, let me just read a few words from your book. You say, quote, now... In an unprecedented break with the government's secret policy, it has been revealed by former military insiders that the exchange was indeed real and took place almost exactly as depicted in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Under the auspices of Defense Intelligence Agency DIA program referred to as Operation Crystal Knight, or what is now being called Project Serpo, it has been claimed that 12 astronauts left Earth in July 1965 and were taken to the planet Serpo in the binary system Seta Reticuli aboard an alien spacecraft as part of an exchange program. Who are these former military insiders that are talking? Uh, well, they continue to continue to refer to themselves. The main one continues to refer to himself as anonymous. Anonymous. And yep. he's, never, he's never really broken that. Uh, there's so much information now out on that website that you can just be reading it for days and days and days. Yes. Uh, www.serpo.org, including 34 updates over the years. I mean, the information is staggering that's out there, and it's very, very, very specific. Uh, when I wrote the article, uh, a lot of that information was not even available. But uh, the original the original story was broken by Anonymous in 21 emails that he sent to that insider group of UFO people, uh, including Bill Ryan. And it was Bill Ryan who started the website. 
but uh, it's quite a story, and the information is very, very specific. Uh, it's incredible. It was- Once you start reading, you just cannot stop. And when I when I had uh, Bill on the show a few months ago, I I asked him, and he said that perhaps the information may have been tainted by now. In other words, uh, some misinformation may have been mixed just because this is so explosive. This was all being organized partly during President Kennedy's incumbents. Some right. speculate that one of the multiple reasons why he was assassinated, I think it was Demona, uh, the Demona issue, but no, no need to get into that one now, but that he wanted to take the opportunity to advance disclosure by confirming this exchange program. Do you think that was true about Kennedy? I do. I do. He had a strong, a very strong uh, opposition to government secrecy. And uh, his speech on that subject is even now on the internet, on YouTube, that he gave on that subject. Uh, he, uh, that's one of the reasons, I think, that he, that he, he started the, uh, the Moon program, was he thought perhaps by starting it that way, he could slowly get the information out. But I, I can't, you know, I'm just guessing when I say that was the reason he was assassinated. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. Uh, of course. There were a lot of other people that had strong reasons for killing him as well. So who knows? Who knows? And that's why we, we start our show with uh, Kennedy's voice talking about secrecy. But the right. next chapter discusses another fascinating topic, crop circles. You have encapsulated some of our favorite topics in your book, and, and many of the characters involved have been past guests of this show. But talking about crop circles, you mentioned my very favorite crop circle of all. And uh, when I had uh, Colin Andrews on the show, he burst my bubble, Len, because I was mentioning how my favorite one of all was the alien next to the binary code uh, crop circle. And he basically said that he suspects that could have been man-made during the time the movie Science was being produced as a marketing ploy. What's your take? And how can we produce such a, an incredible crop circle with technology? Yeah, I don't know that. And I did put that in my article about him. Uh, in the chapter on him, I did mention that, that he did claim, make the claim when I interviewed him then that 80% of the crop circles were man-made. Yeah. Uh, but that, that study that he did was financed by Rockefeller. Right. Now, uh, Rockefeller was also interested in UFO disclosure. So, uh, I would think he would not want to push the, the human element at all if he, if he was at all biased, which I don't know if he was or not. But that particular crop circle was so detailed. I mean, don't forget they had a complete CD in the, in the wheat. Yeah, with binary code and a message, how could anyone have done that overnight? Uh, how could any humans have done that overnight? It would take incredible technology, as far as I'm concerned. But sure. I, so I'm amazed that, that Andrews uh, stuck to that story. You know, I had interviewed him. Uh, I had interviewed him about ten years earlier for the magazine, and at that time, in fact, he was the first person I ever interviewed for Atlantis Rising back in 1996. And at that time, he he had no no theory as to the fact that these could have been done by humans. At that point, he was totally convinced that they were of alien origin. So uh, he changed over the years. Now, when you interviewed him, were, were you convinced by him that they were made by humans? What was your what was your reaction? Well, uh, we discussed both both sides of the story. We have to 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 look at all the angles. Of course, there's the Doug and Dave. You probably heard those names. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't think that with sticks and rope you can <clears throat> create such an elaborate uh, crop circle. However, that morning 
The day I had Colin on the show, I received this uh, mysterious email from somebody who said that he replicated a crop circle using a, a microwave and, and maser technology and told me that our own government has the, the, the capability using satellite technology to produce these. I really don't think that somebody on the ground is creating this. However, I also don't have any proof that it's one alien or two our technology. I just think it's just incredible creations you see all over the place. Well, it's possible it's possible that the technology does exist. I mean, the government has a lot of secret technology, let's face it, right. uh, that we that we don't know anything about, but what what makes me continue to think that that it is of alien origin is the very is the subject matter. I don't think any humans have the ability to make to make these kind of incredibly mysterious uh glyphs. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's almost and, like uh there's signs for maybe, I mean, could it be, uh, let's not call them art, but signs for uh, alien races that just fly by and almost like saying, oh, we were here and just so that somebody else can look at them. But here's another area that I discussed with Amy. You also mentioned this name, since we mentioned the name Paul Vigate, who was another crop circle investigator who died at the age of 44 from mysterious circumstances. Oh, Left really? his house. Yeah. Oh, yes. I investigated this uh, a lot when I had uh, Colin on the show. He left his house, left the keys to his car behind, and all of a sudden was found dead next to a river. And in the same week, another colleague of Colin Andrews, another crop circle investigator, Dr. John Sherwood, is also found dead. Is this a coincidence? I don't think so. What's your take on these? I doubt it. I doubt it. They, uh, what year was that? Do you happen to know? that? They yes, died? this was on uh, February 20th, 2009. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, uh, I think that uh, there is a lot of suppression going on, and Colin was go Colin was getting onto that suppression because in my interview with him, I asked about the government's involvement, the uh, British government's involvement, and he said yes, yes, there was involvement. In fact, Operation Blackbird was black was uh, completely taken off the uh, air. Right. Uh, Blackbird was an attempt to, to to post cameras overnight and watch what happened in the fields. And when they got the results, apparently they, they just completely uh, blacked it out. Not only so, that, but at, at the studio, they were doing, they were releasing this information. All of a sudden, the studio lights, even the emergency generators, shut down. Yeah, so they, they obviously want to keep this a secret. I think the CIA is probably involved, too. I would, I'm sure they are. See, the question I have is why? Why, is, why and what is the purpose of these? What are they trying to tell us? Whether, whether it's us or whether it's them, meaning the extraterrestrials, what is the purpose? What are they trying to tell us? I think they're trying to let us know about their presence, A. B, they're trying to convey certain information that we should be able to figure out by now. I think all the all the UFO appearances in the skies all over the world are deliberate. They're they're here to tell us that they're here, and the the crop circles are, fall into that same category. We're here, and uh, we we're here to help you get through what's coming. I think that's the message. Uh, but uh, they can't actually uh, land in a public place and right. make it obvious for a lot of reasons. First of all, a lot of uh, military people are on alert to shoot them down. Yeah. 
And according to Paul, to, to, to Philip Corso, we have the ability to do that now from satellites. So uh, there's danger for them to actually uh, put in a, a real appearance. But I think they're here to tell us they're here. And uh, especially down in Mexico, Jaime, have you had Jaime on your show? Jaime Mosa, no, but I will very soon, yes. The, 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 the UFO displays in Mexico are incredible. But here, I think they're afraid to do what they're doing in Mexico. Because and when you ask Jaime, what, how is that you get such a preponderance of UFO sightings there? And the answer is simple. We just, we just don't shoot him down. Exactly. We, we invite them. He could have said we invite them. And exactly. here is the opposite. Here is the opposite. And of course, have you had, have you had Dr. Boylan on your show? No, no, I have not yet. I have not yet. But before I forget, you, you know the name Dr. Paul Benowitz by chance? Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. In this uh, uh, collection of, of items that I got from this estate sale, I found some original handwritten letters by, by Dr. Paul Benowitz. And some of the information that I found there, one of them being something I discussed with Anthony Sanchez. I don't know if you've, you've heard about his, his story, UFO Highway. He interviewed a, uh, a retired... Air Force colonel who allegedly worked at Dulce, but apparently the technology that was used to to shoot the Roswell and other UFOs down was developed by Dr. Benowitz. So these are some letters that we include, folks, on the USB drive that we have for uh, uh, Season 2. But the next chapter, you discuss exopolitics, and I see you discuss Dr. Michael Sala and his research into the Iraqi Stargate. During our conversation, also, it's interesting because all the people you talk about, we've talked at one point, so I'm lucky, I guess. We talked about how the real reason why the United States invaded Iraq was not because of oil, was not because of weapons of mass destruction, was to gain access to a Stargate and close it. Please elaborate. Well, that was Salah's uh, theory. And uh, yeah. when, I when I interviewed Salah, Way back, in, uh, and that became uh, that that interview, that article became chapter. Uh, I think it's chapter um, eleven in the book. I can't recall. Uh, mm -hmm. When I interviewed him at that point, he elaborated on that. He had already written the, the article on his website, and uh, that's why I wrote about it because it was such an incredible story. But it made a lot of sense when when you consider it made a lot of sense that there was something there. Uh, that may have been left behind by the Anunnaki when they were here. And uh, that Saddam Hussein maybe uh, was working on finding a way to make this thing work, and the French and German archaeologists who were helping him develop, uh, I think they were working on the city of Uruk there, uh, the archaeological sites there, that they were going to help him too uh, figure out how to use this thing. Mm -hmm. Whatever it was, and I think that that Salah, I think Salah was right in that theory. I think that probably was the real reason for the invasion of Iraq, because you know why was there such urgency if it was all about oil? You know, oil doesn't necessarily require that that we get there and do it quickly, but closing that Stargate would give them a reason for such urgency. And uh, I have no doubt whatsoever that Stargates do exist. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm... Stuart Swerdlow also confirms this uh, and says that that's exactly that. The Stargate was underground 
uh, somewhere in Baghdad. But if you notice, one of the first things the, the U.S. military did when they arrived in Baghdad, instead of going to the oil fields or, or, or more important areas, they went directly to the museums and they took over. And the information I've received was that we took a lot of, of items from there and replaced them with copies. Of course, I have no way to confirm this. This is information that I, I've received. But in your next chapter entitled Information Wars, this is very important just because we are alternative media too. You discuss some of the individuals who are fighting the system to obtain information that will lead us to disclosure. It's an information minefield out there, Len. And I say this because sometimes it's very difficult to separate the truth from fiction. Even when you pursue a, a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request for those outside of the United States. Also, let's not forget President Eisenhower's words about the military-industrial complex. If extraterrestrial technology exists, don't you think it would be in the hands of private defense contractors? And if that is the case, then everything falls outside the jurisdiction of FOIA, don't you think? That's true. That's true, Mel. Uh, yeah, if, 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 if the defense contractors have the information, then they can't, they don't have, they're not obliged to respond to a FOIA request, absolutely. Uh, they're a private organization. So that's a good point. And, uh, and, and yeah, and Corso, of course, Corso said it, that a lot of the retrieved technology was given to all these contractors for them to be able to say, we invented it. Just take right. the whole credit. So it's so plausible. Well, no, but, but in the case of the anti-gravity technology, we were working on the anti-gravity technology in the 50s. And I pointed out in my book that 47 universities and corporations had all that anti-gravity information. And of course, a lot of the Nazi scient ex-Nazi scientists brought here under P Operation Paperclip were being employed by those uh, aerospace companies. And they had been, possibly some of them had been working on Hitler's uh, flying saucers technology. So um, I, I, I can't believe that since we had so many people working on anti-gravity technology in the 50s, that it still hasn't it still hasn't been come out yet. You know, that's the most amazing thing in the world to me. Well, because it, it's so profitable to continue making these tin airplanes because it's profitable. Exactly. You have fuel. And of course, and, they require and, oil. Even though they require oil, and our our entire world economy is oil based. Exactly. Exactly. And it also to mention that Dr. Stephen Greer and his Orion project, but the Disclosure Project, which you also discuss on your book, and everybody who's listening probably knows what this is, uh, at the National Press Club in May of 2001, which took the back seat a few months after, because of 9-11. Do you think that this would have snowballed more if September 11, 2001 had not happened? Yeah, probably so. Probably so, because that took you know it took over the headlines for months after that, and uh, it's quite a coincidence, isn't it, that that they would, they would that would happen right around the same time? Absolutely, uh, especially when more than one billion, not million, one billion people watch uh, the Disclosure Project in the in the months after it after it came out. A was it really a billion? That's un that's unbelievable. I didn't know that. Yep. One billion people, more than one billion. Uh, he shared that with me, Dr. Greer, a few months how ago. Did he get that, how did he get that number? Where did that number come from? Well, apparently that? it was all over the internet and they get all the hits and they uh, added all the hits, uh, you know, worldwide. And that's, that's, it's, it's the most watched, uh, let's call it UFO related, uh, piece of news 
ever to be witnessed by wow. Wow. by on the planet. That's amazing. I think Greer is the Greer is definitely leading the charge now, and he's made more progress than anyone else in getting in getting this stuff on Earth. If anyone can get it done, he can. You know, I really think so. I, although Steve Bassett is also doing a great job of uh, of trying to get it revealed. Yep, absolutely. Well, let's jump to President Truman and the creation of uh, MJ-12. In your opinion, Len, what was the main purpose of MJ-12? And do you think, although with different members, do you think MJ-12 still exists today or has it merged or morphed into something else? I think that MJ-12 was the only proper reaction to the crash of an extraterrestrial vehicle on U.S. soil. I mean, what else could he do? He himself had no knowledge of science or technology. I mean, he was basically scientifically challenged, you know. He was, no. he was an ex-haberdasher. So uh, bringing together the best minds, political, I mean, uh, scientific, military, intelligence-wise, and, and, and creating a panel like MJ-12 was a logical thing to do. He did the right thing. No question about it. And uh, to study it and say, well, what do we do now? What do we do now? What are the implications of this in terms of uh, defense, in terms of science, in terms of technology? What's the next step? So uh, if he didn't do it, uh, he, would be he would be tremendously lacking because it, it was needed to be done immediately upon, upon the Roswell crash. Well, you know how today everything is national security, and, and I don't agree with the Patriot Act, and I don't agree with a lot of the draconian legislation that has come after 9-11. However, at that time, just because we had ended a war, uh, if we had indeed retrieved this uh, technology, I can see how the United States would have been very, very secretive. And I have created this this uh, group just to make sure that the information didn't lead to our so-called enemies, don't you think? Yes, I do, especially, uh, this is the point I made in the book, you know, the crash at Roswell was only a few months after Operation High Jump in, in the Antarctic. Right. And at Operation High Jump was actually, we actually were engaged by, by saucers. Um, at, uh, our military people were engaged by saucers, technology, for the first time. And they, they caused us to run and get out of there. So we knew what the, we knew what the saucers were. We knew that what they could do. And, for it to, and then to find out all of a sudden that one crashed in Roswell, New Mexico, I can see why all the alarm bells would have gone off immediately. It makes sense. Because they chased us out of Antarctica. Right, exactly. And uh, <clears throat> I've shared this with the, the listeners. I, I have an envelope, a picture of an envelope coming in the, from 1938 uh, from uh, Antarctica. It's called... Uh, well, what is it? The Little America. That's where the, the stamp in 1938 there. So the Americans were already there also yeah. in, in uh, Antarctica. But this this story of uh, Operation High Jump, Admiral lead, uh, led by Admiral Byrd, it's one of the most fascinating stories because they were supposed to be there for about, what was it, three months? And they had to return only three weeks later just because they were encountered. And his plane was uh, not shut down, was brought down. He was interviewed by one of the, can we call him Avril, and uh, basically told, you need to get out of here, don't come back. And then all of a sudden, we get the 1952 flyover over uh, the capital. What do you think happened in 1952? Do you think that's alien, or is that the Vril or the Nazis? Oh, I think those were alien craft. I think those were alien craft. Uh, all, all I know about Operation High Jump, I've studied this in detail, and there is, there is film out there of the, uh, of the engagement. 
the, the Russians have actually put a film out there on YouTube showing the alien uh, saucers flying over the ships. Uh, my, my understanding of it is that uh, it was a 20-minute engagement, just 20 minutes, and that the, uh, the, the, the saucers came out of the water and engaged the ships. And uh, there was one aircraft carrier there, the Pine Sea, and they sank the destroyer Murdoch. And 68, uh, sold, 68 sailors died in that, in that 20 minute engagement. So, uh, right after that, we terminated the, uh, the operation and, and left. So, three months later comes, comes Roswell. And, uh, you can be sure that the, the Pentagon knew what could happen if Roswell was the leading edge of another attack. You see, that's probably what they mm -hmm. were afraid of. That, that, that the Antarctic sources were now attacking the U.S. So uh, it made sense for them to keep it secret at that time. And as you said, there's, a, there's also footage of Admiral Byrd's expedition in which they found an area of Antarctica that's almost tropical. You can see it on the film in color. You can see the greenery that you would not expect in such a, a an isolated area of the world that's expected to be covered over ice. But in your next chapter, you discuss science fiction films, sci-fi. You also mention H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. Let me ask you about Jules Verne. Here's someone who was born in 1828 and wrote books dealing with technology way ahead of of our times, even today, he talked about submarines and rockets. Do you think he had some help, like maybe Tesla did, since you mentioned so many books and movies? What's your take on him, and, and uh, what are your favorites, by the way? Well, I think, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, I think the uh, that that possibly he did, because he was such a visionary, and was so yes. ahead of his time, as was H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells wrote about uh, aerial battles uh, between England and France, between England and Germany, Ten years before World War One, mm. uh, in fact, his, his the whole story of the time machine was way, way, way out of its time. So, how these men got this information, I don't know. It could be that perhaps they themselves were extraterrestrials. We don't, that's not out of the question. Uh, it could be that perhaps they had contacts that we don't know about. But this couldn't be accidental. You know, it couldn't be accidental that they could be so far ahead of their time. No, no, and uh, especially as you said, H.G. Wells, who wrote about uh, time travel, it makes you wonder if he got information and maybe took a trip to the future, and that's why he was able to to somewhat predict the conflict between Germany and and England. Um, but why do you think that the fifties, in my opinion, although I was not even alive back then, but I've discussed this with Jim Nichols, a great artist, as you know, and you have included some of his great work in your book. But there's something about the 1950s and science fiction movies that is different about any other decade. Why do you think that is? And is it because of Roswell? Well, not specifically Roswell. The 50s was also the time when all of the uh, all of the Space Brothers were making their appearances. Everything, oh. the, 50s, the 50s was the critical decade for all of this. Uh, in which decisions had to be made as to what we were going to do. Uh, when Eisenhower met with the aliens in, on February 20th of 1954, um, that was the, one of the most critical events of, of the entire decade because they offered him a way. What they offered him, if he had accepted it, could have changed history completely. Uh, they offered him technology and spiritual guidance and biotechnology, all kinds of things that could have could have turned this planet into a utopia. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. But the, the price was that we would have to give up our nuclear weapons. And at that time, the generals were not willing to consider that because we were just on the brink of the Cold War and we didn't know if these guys were hostile or they were friendly. So, you know, you know, we can't, they can't be blamed for turning down the deal, but uh, it could have changed everything if we had accepted it. But everything happened in the 50s. And then, and then of course, all the science fiction film, that was, not, that was not an accident either. I think certain Hollywood people were getting some inside information, even then. Certainly the movie, The, the Day the Earth Stood Still, was really uh, incredibly predictive of what what was what the case was, where the alien came and asked us to give up our nuclear weapons. Exactly what happened with Eisenhower. Exactly. So uh, there was so much going on in the fifties; it was mind-boggling. And don't forget about all the anti-gravity uh, technology that was being developed out in California. All of that was happening in the fifties. It was unbelievable. Right, and let's not forget that when the movie. Close Encounters of the Third Kind was uh, featured at the White House. You probably know this story. Uh, Grant Cameron, expert on, on presidential UFOs, he said that Steven Spielberg was sitting next to President Reagan, and Reagan whispered in his ear, you won't believe how true this is and then some. Yeah. What's your take on that moment? I think it probably happened, but I don't know who who could have list, who could have uh, reproduced that quote. Who who was it that that reported it? I don't know. About I wonder sure. if it's even if it's uh, Spielberg who told somebody else. It might have been Spielberg. Yeah, it might have been Spielberg. Spielberg has had an inside track on all of this, and uh, I think the reason for that was when he made Close Encounters, he convinced the military that he that he was the guy to use for the public acclamation program. And I, I think that's what happened. This is a very important topic, uh, Lynn. I'm so glad that you have included so many different areas in your book because I think science fiction, it, it, what a better way to disclose. You probably have seen the TV series The Event, uh, even V, and some others that seem to be slowly, it's on a, a slow drip process, just putting stuff out there. But the moment somebody says, you know, this is true, no, it's Hollywood and science fiction, immediately it becomes discounted and it becomes undermined. So if they're doing this to, to acclimate us, they're doing a good job. But at the same time, it doesn't help the serious researchers like, like you uh, because if you do some kind of finding and then Hollywood takes a script and puts it in a movie, all of a sudden somebody says, well, I saw that in a movie yesterday. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. And that's what happened with Whitley Strieber and Communion. Yes. Because the movie was such an atrocious movie, such a horror movie, that everyone said, ah, that's a, that's, that's a lot of baloney. Yes. You know? So Hollywood can make or break a story, and if it's treated correctly, it, it's tremendous. I think they did a, a hatchet job in Independence Day by showing the aliens to be so grotesque right. uh, and so slimy that nobody would ever believe that, you know, so that's what they do. That's what they do. They, but but the George Powell movies of the fifties were different. You know, the Destination Moon was a really visionary movie, and uh, Paul Davids, who knew him, uh, said that that was his intent was to make people understand that we were going to be traveling to the stars, and that we had the ability to do that. It was a whole different kind of a thing than than the monster movies. Well, same thing with uh, Travis Walton. 
You probably saw the movie Fire in the Sky. Yeah, oh, God, uh, they God, they really, oh, that was horrible. Yes, was you, horrible. you talked to Travis, and he, you know, you have to say the movie put him on the map, on the international arena, if you will, which is good, because now he can tell his story the way it should be. But he even, he, he even agrees that they butchered it and they made it Hollywood because they, they needed to sell the movie. Well, you know, I wonder, Mel, if it was really that they wanted to sell the movie or if they wanted to change the, uh, the facts and leave an image in the public mind that this is what happened, not what he says, but this is what happened. Right. We, all, we always believe the movie rather than the written word. We'll always believe the movie. The, the visuals take precedence all the time. Absolutely, especially in a society that needs immediate gratification. When you have a three, 400-page book or a one-hour-and-a-half movie, most people will choose going to the movie. They need the Absolutely. they need the cliff notes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, so, so, science fiction film has to have tremendous influence on our attitudes and our beliefs. And Hollywood can shape shape those beliefs any way they want, really. Uh, you know, as George, as as we found out from like Avatar, which yes. uh, which had a which I think was a, a really uh, honest attempt to let the public know about what what's possible right now. Uh, that we can't take an army to another planet. We can take a whole a whole army, including helicopters and everything else, to another planet. You know, uh, that's an incredible story right there. What a great movie that was. I, yeah. I, I, I never get bored of watching it. And I always think, when I speak to Native American friends, and I say, look, we don't even have to go to the future. That, that movie's based in the future. All we have to go, you know, go three, four, five hundred years ago when the conquistadors came to uh, to America, that's exactly an avatar moment right there. Not not with the technology, but you know, the the, the indigenous people were merged and and perished because of the new new civilization. Now this is this is a thought that crosses my mind all the time. And I don't mean to to hurt anybody who thinks that all aliens are benign. But what if what if an extraterrestrial civilization comes here a la V and promises to to give us all our solutions, and it's only a ploy in order to take over. We have to consider that possibility. We cannot just stay with our guards down if we have to learn from our history, Len. I agree with that, but see, here's the thing, here's the thing, Mel. Um, the aliens that are most likely to want to take over this planet are already here. They have lived here for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. I mean, you know, I think from... Uh, from the David Icke material, that no. the reptilians have been living underground on this planet for a long, long time. As a matter of fact, they consider it their planet. Yes. So to talk about extraterrestrials, you know, it's pointless. They're, they've, they're already here. And uh, I think that in a, in a way, since they are such experts in mind control, which is a, a point I brought out in the book. And deception. And deception that probably we are already existing under their mind control already. And really, they're not just interested in real estate. They're not here to take real estate. They already have our real estate. I mean, they already live here. They want us. And I think that what they want is basically a slave planet. No. That's my feeling. That's, so, uh, so that, that's my take on it. That's something I hear again and again, and it's very hard for me to, to accept that possibility. But once again, we go back to, to, to the conquistadors. They went, 
They, they, we came, we, we came, we saw, we conquered. And it's the same thing. And many people exactly. say, exactly. and when we come back, we have to take our one and only intermission so you can grab some water. Um, we have people like uh, Dr. David Jacobs and others who talk about the hybrid uh, program, which I think is very plausible. If you're going to have another race come here, what a perfect way to, to merge with the existing civilization. Bring some people here, uh, create a hybrid uh, program, uh, make them speak the language, learn the culture, and that way all you need to do is activate just almost like the and i don't mean to to terrorize anybody but the movie uh the, the one that that uh, world of the worlds you know what i mean exactly. but when we come back i want to talk about something very important we talk about anti-gravity uh our mutual friend dr paul laviolette who we did a show where we got disconnected 24 times oh wow this, this really? discussing anti-gravity it's an interesting story and in this uh, i'm going to continue mentioning the estate sale because i have a manual an anti-gravity manual on how to build an anti-gravity machine with the schematics and everything. This is wow. probably the first time you've heard me talk about this. I hope yeah. that we are not shut down after this. Tell us how to get in touch with you, your work, and your great book. Uh, okay, well, my website is the best way, um, and my, my email address is on the website. Uh, the website is uh, www.et- dash, uh, dash is a hyphen, really, secrethistory.com. And I have everything out there on the website, uh, so I think that's the best best way to. And my and my email address is out there too. And we have links on our website as well. And folks, I have the book right here in front of me: "The Secret History of Extraterrestrials, Advanced Technology, and the Coming New Race." I really, really enjoyed it. It has it is crammed with information, and as you can tell, we're not taking any breaks in in, in our speech patterns because I want to be able to extract as much from from uh, this book and from Len as we can. Please don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy.
This is Stephen Bassett, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.